Good morning. This is Steve Coleman. We are in a new series on the book of Philippians. Previously, we looked at the narrative in Acts 16 that described how the church in Philippi got started. But before we go any further, let me ask you a question. Let's say you went on a hike out west in the mountains, somewhere outside of cell phone range, and you got lost, completely lost for days. So long, in fact, that you were facing death. Too weak to go any further, and with zero hope of rescue, you sat there and took the paper and pen you had in your pocket to write a note to your family and friends, hoping it would be found someday. What would you write to them? What would you say? Well, this short letter of Philippians was one of several written by Paul when he was in prison, likely his incarceration in Rome. He wasn't sure whether or not he would see these people again. He says in chapter 2, verse 24, he's trusting the Lord that he'll be able to visit again, but he didn't know. And history doesn't tell us if this imprisonment was Paul's last or not. This could have been the final communication they would get from him, the last words he could communicate. In the introductory message of this book, we learned some facts about Philippi. Just a couple of reminders here. It's in the eastern part of Macedonia, modern-day Greece. There was a key trade route between Asia and the West that ran through the city. It was an important outpost for Rome. It was on the edge of their empire, and they made it into a Roman city with Roman citizenship granted to its members. They even allowed retiring Roman soldiers to get a significant land grant in Philippi. So because of this, when Paul visited Philippi, the city had a mixed culture and citizenship, Macedonian and Roman. This morning, we'll look at the beginning of the letter. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can connect together virtually and uh, worship and praise you, pray to you, lift your name up, and read your word. We pray that you would sink your word into our hearts this morning. Amen. While reading Paul's salutation of the letter, Paul and Timothy, bond service of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This word bond servant is interesting. What does it mean? Well, for the readers of this letter, Gentiles, what would this word have meant? Their initial thought would have been only the concept of a slave. They would have immediately thought of a person owned by a master. It was the word associated with this common institution. Because of the culture they lived in, this word would have meant humility and servitude. But these Gentile converts in Philippi were no longer just members of the Macedonian and Roman cultures. They were now believers and part of a society of people whose roots were in Judaism and whose story had its origins in the Old Testament. The Philippian church would have been familiar with the Old Testament in its Greek form, the Septuagint. That was a Greek translation of the Old Testament made a couple of hundred years prior to Christ. You see, Jews outside of Israel didn't know Hebrew. And so this translation was made to put the Old Testament 
Hebrew manuscript into a language more readily read and understood. And so at Philippi, with there being few Jews in the city, the church would have depended on the Septuagint as their Old Testament Bible. And in this translation of the Old Testament, this Greek word for slave was used to mean both a true slave and was used as a title of honor for those in special service to God. Joshua is called the servant of the Lord, as was Moses, Nehemiah, David, Jonah, and others. In the Septuagint, the Greek word used to translate all of these terms is the word Paul uses here for servant or slave. It is this double connotation that Paul probably meant. He and Timothy are both slaves to Christ Jesus, bound to him as slaves to their master, but whose slavery is expressed in loving service on behalf of Christ for the Philippians and others. Then Paul addresses the letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The word saint is often used in our present culture for a person who is recognized as having an exceptional degree of holiness, likeness, or closeness to God. But Paul uses it routinely to refer to any believer in Christ. For example, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, which addresses many of the ugly problems in that church, Paul calls them all saints. That's because holiness is not conferred on us by what we do or how we act, but by Christ alone. And it is his righteousness that makes us holy or saints. The term says nothing about our qualities. I am not holy, but me, wearing, as it were, Christ's righteousness, I am seen as being holy and deemed to be holy. A holy one of God. This would not have been new information for the New Testament church under the teaching of Paul, but identifying the people of the city in the introduction as well to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi adds another twist to the statement. The twist comes with the metaphor of dual citizenship Paul develops in this letter. With their Roman citizenship, Philippi becomes a little bit of Rome located in Macedonia, with a unique history and therefore their special devotion to the emperor as divine lord. The people are Macedonians and Romans, so they would have picked up on Paul's reference to their residency in Philippi and on their status as saints in Christ Jesus, citizens of heaven. So Paul may have been using this phrase to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi to carry the idea of identifying them as Philippian believers in Christ Jesus by their allegiance to a different Lord than Caesar. They were God's holy people, his citizens in that city. In giving this idea in the introduction, Paul is identifying a subject he will discuss later in the letter. You know, operas have only been with us since the 1600s. Jacopo Perry is called the inventor of the opera. Daphne was the first opera ever written, and it included an overture. Now, overtures most often establish the musical themes that will evolve throughout the opera, often by presenting medleys of key musical numbers that the audience will hear during the course of the show. But a good overture is not just melodic. It sets the tone for the coming show. 
Well, just like an opera or a musical, Paul is using the beginning of the letter to plant ideas of the themes he will develop throughout the letter. The first theme is the idea of being citizens of heaven. Paul is planting this idea early because he will emphasize it throughout the letter. Embrace your citizenship is his message. In these, perhaps his final words to the church, he will emphasize their citizenship in heaven in order to encourage the Philippians to understand the implications of their service in Christ. The speakers who will have these sections later in the series, uh, in chapter toward the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 3, will get to elaborate on this theme in coming weeks. But let's turn our attention to the introduction to Paul's prayer. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Jesus Christ. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Although translated here as three sentences, this is really one long convoluted sentence in Greek, not unusual for Paul. How we can go about understanding this is to recognize the way Paul has constructed it. There's a parallelism of thought. This is a common practice in ancient writings and is helpful in understanding what's being said. The structure looks something like this. It's not a word for word here, sort of summarize the statements. But the point is, the first statement in verse 3 is, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. In the second statement, labeled B, it's in verses 4 and 5, where Paul talks about praying for you with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. The third statement, C, I'm convinced that God will complete his work among you in verse 6. Now, the remaining statements all will reflect parallelism with the earlier statements, B and A, in that order. So you get the whole uh, B prime. He says, I feel this way because I have you in my heart and because of you partnering in the grace of God. And that's the parallel thought with the Uh, letter B above it. Uh, And then the A prime, the final statement, God is my witness as to my deep longing for you in verse 8. So the two A statements, the first statement of the section and the last statement, are sort of parallel ideas. Uh, Letters B and B prime reflect, again, parallel ideas. And the whole paragraph is hinging on, is um, centering on that statement that's labeled C, convinced that God will complete his work among you. So the A's talk about, A and A prime, talk about Paul's love for them. B and B prime express the gratitude for their partnership. And in C, he centers on the truth that God can be trusted to complete the work he's doing, both in the lives of the Philippian believers and in the work of the kingdom. So in the process of communicating these things, Paul really has an emphasis 
as well on the way they have faithfully partnered with him. By thanking them for their partnership and showing how it furthered the gospel, Paul was encouraging them to partner together with the gospel. This, mentioned here, is another theme that seasons this whole letter. We'll find it cropping up again and again, and it's a message for us today. You know, we'll see this in virtually every chapter, uh, a couple of times each in the book of Philippians. Listen for it as the series goes on. Well, moving on to Paul's prayer for the church, let's read. And this I pray, that your love may overflow still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may discover the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. One interesting thing uh, I wanted to mention at first is love. Their love was to abound or overflow more and more. This emphasis comes from the metaphor and the repetition of the words, more and more. It's written out just this way in the original language. When you hear about anything that overflows continually and in increasing amounts, what does that suggest to you? Does it give you the impression of too much of something, that something is going to waste? Well, let me relate an event I did not have the opportunity to see firsthand, but I wish I could have. My wife, Julie, and my daughter, Melanie, were on a trip to the Writers' Conference in North Carolina. They got up in the morning at the hotel and went down to the Continental Breakfast. Melanie decided to get a waffle at the self-serve station where step one is getting batter from the batter dispenser. I don't know what she did, but the long and short of it was that the nozzle on the dispenser came off in her hand. What immediately followed was a sound, glug, 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 coming from the large container of batter perched on top of the dispenser. Batter was flowing everywhere in spite of Melanie's best effort to plug the hole where the nozzle had been. I believe the flood was eventually brought under control. Well, in this prayer, Paul wants God to drive the church to practice love so that it overflows more and more like that river of batter gushing from the dispenser. No thought of rationing or measuring out amounts, no choosing to apply it in this situation, but not necessarily in that circumstance. No, love is that which is always flowing in every situation at all times. This is what Paul's praying for, for the church at Philippi. Picking on another thought from the prayer, he prays for love to overflow, that they'll have this full and complete knowledge and discernment, that they would discover things which are excellent, and the result, so that they are sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. The word sincere and blameless, uh, in the context, sincere means clean and pure. Blameless carries the thought of not stumbling or being led into sin. As Christians, the purity and blamelessness, the freedom from the penalty of sin that the Philippians and we enjoy is because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. This prayer is talking about life beyond our initial conversion. 
What is included in this prayer is that our lives, after a lifetime of living for Christ, with all of the practical fruits of that righteousness, that it would be something that is to the praise of God. In spite of living in a sin-cursed world, we will be becoming more like Christ in our character. Paul's prayer for them is that they might live the life of the future, but live that in the present. In this way, they avoid being led into sin and will be found pure on the day of Christ. As with the earlier parts of Paul's overture here at the beginning of the letter, the, this prayer brings up an item that anticipates the contents of the letter. Live in light of the future. We're going to see this elsewhere in the book of Philippians. His concern is when, with their current life in Christ that they point themselves toward the goal, aligning their living consistent with the end goal of life in heaven. You know, in the book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, written by Stephen Covey in the 1990s, it contained a lot of great information and insights into successful living. Uh, the second habit that he has reads, begin with the end in mind. And he had the readers focus on envisioning their funeral and what they would want people to say about them, and then taking steps now to lead to that goal. In a similar way, Paul wants to point the Philippian believers, the readers of his letter, to the time in the future where they are filled with the fruits of righteousness and are found sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. As his letter unfolds, Paul will be urging his readers to look toward the future and the day of Christ as they go about their lives. We've identified several themes that uh, are in this uplifting letter to the church at Philippi. Embrace your citizenship in heaven. Partner together for the gospel and the grace of God. Live in light of the future. We are citizens of heaven, and Paul's compass in this letter is aiming at that. If we forget that, we can miss the vision of who we are and what God's trying to do in the world. Talking about vision, Henry Ford had a vision with his automobile. He said, I will build a motor car for the great multitude. It will be constructed of the best materials by the best men to be hired after the simplest designs that modern engineering can devise. But it will be so low in price that no man making a good salary will be unable to own one and enjoy with his family the blessings of hours of pleasure in God's great open spaces. In 1909, Henry Ford also had a vision to scale production. He believed the Model T platform was the best strategy to produce this affordable car for the world. Therefore, he says, in 1909, I announced one morning without any previous warning that in the future we were going to build only one model, that the model was going to be the Model T, and that the chassis would be exactly the same for all cars. And he says, I also remarked, any customer can have a car painted any color he wants so long as it is black. Well, Ford was communicating a reality of his production line that was helping to make sure his cars would eventually realize his vision. 
Paul, too, is describing a reality of the believer's life. To live as a Christian is to know love and overflow with it, to discover the things that are excellent, and to be sincere and blameless. The only way to have these characteristics is through Christ. They can only come through Christ's. A key element is for us as believers in Christ to remember that we have, had, we have a country of origin. For most of us, it's the United States. And at the same time, we are also citizens of heaven. If we forget this truth, and if we're not oriented in line with it, we may not be able to fulfill its responsibilities and enjoy its rights and benefits. It's time we pray Paul's prayer for ourselves and each other. Well, let's pray. Our Father, pray that our love will keep growing more and more, together with true knowledge and perfect judgment, so that we will be able to choose what is best. Help us in our lives to be filled with the truly good qualities which only Jesus Christ can produce, for the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thank you for being with us, and have a great week.